Good morning, everybody. Here we go, just Jesus, uh, defender. Last week we saw that there were times when Jesus confronts. This morning we're going to think about times when Jesus defends. And uh, it seems to me as we read the stories in the Gospels that Jesus was willing to defend anybody and everybody who needed to be defended against the prejudice of others. And I guess there are just loads of things we could have taken this morning and looked at. We could have looked at the way Jesus uh, defends the outcast or how he uh, is a defender of the poor or the uh, ostracized or the foreigner or the sinner, although we looked at that a few uh, weeks ago when we looked at grace. But as it's Father's Day, uh, I thought I'd just offer uh, two ways in which Jesus defends. A defender of women and defender of children. The most notable group, but perhaps the less obvious group, that Jesus defends in the Gospels is that of women. Question, men, men, what do you think of women? It's a rhetorical question. I want you to be honest in your heart and in your mind, and I will not ask you to share it with the person next to you, or write it down, or take the idea home and share it with your spouse if you have one. What, it is a burning question, Bob, you're quite right. Uh, what do you think of women? Okay, you got it? You're there? I mean, woman taken from Adam's side to be equal to her or created from a spare rib, what the heck do you expect from a spare rib? You know, where are you? Men, what do you think of women? Women, what do you think of women? What do you think of women as a gender? What do you feel? What do you believe about yourself as a woman? Now, when and where Jesus lived, women were among the social outcasts. They were often grouped together with children, slaves, and Gentiles. To give you some idea of what it was like in uh, those days, at every synagogue service, so at every church service, the men would pray together, Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a, a woman. So women, every single time you come to a service to worship, you have the men reminding you that the whole world is grateful that they are not a woman like you. Well, maybe it was funny, maybe it wasn't. It might have been funny the first week, but imagine that every time you began to approach God in worship, the men would leap up and say that kind of prayer. It strikes me that uh, uh, whatever, whatever else men need, we do not need something that stirs our egotistical pride. And yet here they had it, week on week. Blessed art thou, O Lord, who has not made me a woman. You can imagine husband and wife, can't you, fighting like cat and dog on the way to church. And the bloke's thinking, just ten more minutes, I'll be saying the prayer. Ten more minutes, I'll be saying the prayer. And looking straight at his wife, blessed art thou, O Lord. 
And so uh, endemic in the, just the way they ate and breathed and lived was this whole idea that men were somewhere up there and women were somewhere down there. But it was just the start of it. You see, a woman must not talk to a man in public. That was a divorceable offense. Probably because if she started talking, she might never stop. Joke, joke. In regard to her religious duties, a woman was on the same level as a a slave. A woman was regarded as totally incapable of handling uh, anything that was religious. One rabbi put it like this, it is better that the words of the law should be burned than that they should be given to a woman. Remember what we said about rabbis, respect and all that a few weeks ago? It was probably an extreme reaction, but nevertheless. A woman wasn't allowed to read the Bible in the synagogue. A woman didn't count as part of a quorum for a vote in any decisions. A woman's testimony was not valid in a court of law. And get this, when there was a sexual sin, only the woman was guilty. It was her fault. So you remember a few weeks ago when the woman was dragged out of bed into the courtyard, yeah? You might have thought, where was the bloke? Why did they leave him in bed? Did he get away? Well, well, it didn't really matter. He wasn't guilty. She was guilty. Some have even suggested that the man regarded simply as an innocent victim ensnared by the woman's sexual advances was among those ready to throw the first stone. Gives you some idea of the massive prejudice that was going on against women in Jesus' day. Josephus, a Jewish historian, summed it up. A woman is inferior to her husband in all things. And many men have thought that about their wives, although they dare not say it out loud. Now, compared to all of that, you might say, we have moved on marvelously in our society. I don't know, answers on a postcard. With our discrimination laws, we try to alter people's attitudes and prejudices. There are uh, few women, however, there are few women, however, I know today, if any, who are still not hurt, bruised, stung, even deeply affected by some kind of male prejudice. From fathers, from husbands, from male bosses, from male colleagues, our society structures might have changed. But the all-too-familiar prejudice, I observe, still remains. And the church has not been very helpful either. The church just uh, uh, argues about women. What does the church think about women? Well, we can't quite make up our mind. Are they in or are they out? Are they good or are they bad? Should they lead or should they not? Should they speak or should they be quiet? And the church has been just so consistently inconsistent that it's made little difference to the way women have been treated. For example, women can't preach in our churches, be a deacon or lead, but if we send them as missionaries overseas, they can preach, plant uh, a church and lead the world over. So, into all of that mix, what does God think and what did Jesus do? What What does God think and what did Jesus do? Now, to be fair... Uh, It's Kerry, really, that should be uh, leading you through a lot of this material. She's in a much better place to share some of this uh, with you uh, than I am. As many of you know, Redeeming Eve is being published. 
uh, and if it wasn't for a deadline approaching, then she probably would be here to share uh, a lot of this material with you. But what does God think? I'll do my best to help us walk the journey, and then to see how Jesus responded, given the huge pressures, the huge boxes in which women were placed into in their day. So open your Bibles, would you please, right at the beginning, uh, page three, the very beginning of Genesis, and that's where we'll uh, begin our our story. (coughs) Excuse me, page three, uh, Genesis chapter one, verse 26, then God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. Page 3, Genesis 1, verse 26. God said, let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule. Over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So, verse 27, that God did what he said. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Now, the word for man in verse 26, and again in verse 27, the word for man as in, let us make man in our image, it's not male as opposed to female, but it's man as in mankind. So, for example, the uh, New Living Translation translated as people, the message translates it as human beings. So to be clear what we're reading, it says, verse 26, let us make mankind in our image, verse 27, so God created mankind in his image, in the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. In other words, the image of God is not in men, and then women were created to help the men who were made in God's image, which is, putting it quite bluntly, how so much of the way life has been worked out tends to emphasize. Very different to that, it says quite clearly, the image of God is equally in male and in female. Both are required to express the image of God in mankind, in humankind. Both male and female carry equal dignity equal worth, equal value, because both are required in order to express the image of God in human beings. So how have we ended up, if that's the way God created things to be, how have we ended up with cultures around the world, including our own, where men are sometimes up here treated like some kind of God, and women are down here treated as some kind of sub-being that needs to be controlled and ordered by a hierarchy of men. Or perhaps in our country, why do we still have a, a, a sense that women have to fight twice as hard to arrive at the same level as a man in the workplace or respect in society or whatever we might choose? Why is it so messed up? Well, you don't need to look too far to find the answer. If you turn over a page in your Bible, you come to Genesis chapter 3. And in Genesis chapter 3, God is uh, spelling out the consequences, the results, the judgment, the effects of the fall. Look at verse 16 uh, with me. 
To the woman, he said, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. This is Genesis 3, verse 16. With pain, you will give birth to children. Now, that's been true, hasn't it? From my observation, it did look a little uneasy when our four bundles of joy were coming into the world. Similarly, you women will know the pain of the second part of that verse. 3.16b, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Genesis 3 verse 16. Your desire will be for your husband. Nothing particularly bad about that in its wholesome sense. Although because we're now living in a broken and a marred world, you will be tempted to seek uh, through your relationship with men what only you will ultimately find from God. But more importantly for us here, your desire will be for your husband, but your husband will rule over you. There it is, ladies. It's in the Bible. Your husband will rule over you. Get over it. Let's move on. No, no. It's in the Bible as a description of an example of how this world is broken and fallen. It's in the Bible as a description of one of the ways things have gone wrong. One of the ways it was not meant or intended to be. So, men carry the tendency to rule women, not because it's right, or because they've been given some kind of superiority. We've seen from Genesis 1 that's not the case. Men carry this tendency to rule women because of the fall. And whenever men rule women, it's a reminder that it was never meant to be like this. Male egotistical pride was not the way God created this world to be. Now you may remember earlier on in the year when we did your story, my story, God's story that we saw how right at the beginning even in this chapter, Genesis chapter 3 there are hints about Jesus coming to reverse the effects of the fall to cancel out the power of the curse and it's just one verse before the one you just read so if you go with me to Genesis uh, verse, chapter 3 verse 15 the previous Uh, verse. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, God's talking to the serpent, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. There will be an offspring, there will be somebody born of woman who will crush Satan's head. Who will reverse the effects that the fall has brought, who will have power to overcome the curse. So we see it hinted at here. The plan was already in place that Jesus one day would come to destroy, to deal with, to reverse the effects of the fall. And when he died on the cross, he took the curse. When Jesus died on the cross, he took all the effects of the curse, including the curse of male rule. So we read in Galatians, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. So given all that, way back in Genesis, how it was meant to be and how it's all gone tragically wrong, you would expect Jesus' life to reflect the equality that God bestowed on women in creation and to reflect something of the fact that this male rule needed to be corrected and reversed, that something had gone wrong that needed to be put right. And that's what we find. 
And we find that Jesus in his day and in his time is absolutely, incredibly counter-cultural to his day. Let's look at a few examples. Remember what we said about sexual sin? Remember how we said it was the woman that was guilty? Well, what does Jesus say about it? Jesus said, you heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has committed adultery with her in his heart. Now, we usually use the point that what Jesus is saying here is that it's not just the act, it's what you think. But notice something else in this context. Who is Jesus addressing? Whose guilt is he referring to? The man. The man they would have been really alarmed, not because Jesus was saying, if you think about it, therefore you've done it, which is what alarms us. They would have been really alarmed because Jesus was saying, look, men, you have a serious responsibility here, as equal, if not more, to the woman. If you commit adultery, if you look lustfully at a woman, sorry, you've already committed adultery with you in her heart. Remember what we said about women not being able to take any uh, part in religious matters. Yet it was to the women that Jesus gave the incredible privilege and honor of learning, of hearing about the resurrection first and passing that on. Their witness couldn't be regarded in a court of law. They couldn't vote and all of that stuff. But Jesus says, I'm going to break the greatest religious spiritual news that's going to rock this world from now and forever, and I'm choosing to do it this way. To raise up, to bring up the honor, the dignity of women in this matter. Remember what we said about women not being able to handle uh, the scriptures. They, they couldn't even read the lesson. So there was no idea, no sense that a woman could have a, a developing spiritual journey. No possibility that a woman could be a disciple in the way that perhaps we use uh, the term, let alone the way they used the term back then. But turn with me to Mary and Martha, page 1042. Page 1042. You know the story, maybe. I'm going to read it to you. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet, listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. She came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needed. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken away from her. Now, we usually draw the point from uh, Mary and Martha that the whole issue is about women fretting away in the kitchen and Mary has chosen not to do that in some way. uh, She's uh, uh, lifted herself out of the the busyness of life and can be at peace and can be at uh, rest. And I, I guess women's fellowships up and down the country have heard that ad nauseum. The original hearers would not have identified or got focused on Martha in the way that we do. We focus immediately on Martha because it says of Martha, she was worried and upset and fretting, and we go, hey, I'm like that. 
And so we identify with Martha in the story who's busy with all the jobs to do. The original listeners would have been shocked by Mary rather than have identified with Martha. And the reason is all in verse 39, and we can almost miss the subtle detail. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Sitting at the Lord's feet was a technical expression for a student being taught by a rabbi. Wow. Remember, a few weeks ago, a student being taught by a rabbi was the best of the best of the best. Who had the whole of the Old Testament memorized. All of that, it was what every Jewish boy wanted to become. The women weren't even on the agenda. But here Jesus has welcomed Mary as a woman, as a disciple. In a culture where women weren't even allowed to read the lesson in the synagogue. The best of the best of the best. When Jesus called those first disciples with those words every Jewish boy longed to hear, remember, come follow me, the disciples immediately left their nets. At exactly the same call, Mary has left her responsibilities too, but Martha couldn't leave. She didn't leave the kitchen. She couldn't break out of the box that society had placed her in. She somehow couldn't get herself free of the constraints that she felt bound by because she was a woman. So having been offered a place at the feet of Jesus, offered the opportunity to receive the honor of disciple, she's so conditioned as a woman, she didn't, she couldn't accept. All she could hear maybe was the weekly prayer, blessed art thou, O Lord, who has, made, uh, who has not made me a woman. Maybe that's all she could hear, and it just drowned out any offer from Jesus that he was making. She maybe could hear the words, but she could not receive them for herself. Jesus believed in her, but she didn't believe in herself, at least not for anything more than the role she was already in, the box her culture had placed her in. My observation is that many women face that exact same struggle. So we can see how Jesus turned the tables on his culture. And he defended the rights of women as equal citizens in God's new kingdom. Walter Wink says in every encounter that Jesus had with women that he broke the mores of his time. To reinforce this, uh, I just want us to look very quickly, just for a couple of minutes, uh, at the whole sweep of the Gospels. The Gospels were written by men in a male-dominated age. You see, in that culture, history was the history of men. Men did it, women, children and the rest were simply background, they were the backdrop, they were the canvas on the back of the stage for what was actually really happening. But the Gospels are full of women. Matthew mentions them 30 times, Mark and John 19 each, Luke no less than 43 times. And think with me just for a moment about Luke's Gospel. Right at the beginning of Luke's Gospel, you get the stories that are dominated by women. Elizabeth, John the Baptist's mum, and Mary, Jesus's mum. So you get an older woman, and then a younger woman, Mary. Older woman, Elizabeth, younger woman, Mary. Then you get the appearance of an old man, Simeon, 
not to be outwitted, so turns up an even older prophetess called Anna. Then you get the healing of the man possessed by a demon, which is immediately followed in Luke chapter 4 of the healing of Peter's mother-in-law. And then you get the healing of the centurion servant, which is immediately followed by the raising of the widow's son. You get the parable of the shepherd who lost his sheep, uh, immediately followed by the woman who lost her coin. It's almost as if Luke is taking care to respond to some kind of unwritten sexual discrimination law. Which, given the context in which he's writing, is absolutely unprecedented. They were ushering in a new era where the old way, dominated by the curse, was being broken. And men could be free to be men and women were to be free to be women. And just in case uh, uh, we haven't painted a full enough picture, it says in Luke chapter 8 that the women travelled from, uh, Jesus travelled from town to town, the twelve went with him, uh, and also some women, it names them there, there's not enough room on the screen for them. And it says at the end, these women were helping to support them out of their own means. Imagine that. It's a group of blokes being supported financially by some women. Even in today's culture, my observation is that a man finds it particularly difficult to be financially supported by a woman. It causes shame. It causes a sense, I haven't quite got what it takes. I haven't quite made it. But Jesus, his group of men, are willingly, wonderfully supported by these women who were able to help. He's saying something big here. He's saying this is a new way that we'll do life together, where we're all in it as equal partners, where we all need one another because we've all been made in God's image, male and female. And so he placed on them great value and dignity, the value and dignity they should always have had. Dorothy says, it's quite a long quote, so uh, hang with it if you can, uh, puts it like this. Perhaps it's no wonder then that the women were the first at the cradle and the last at the cross. They'd never known a man like this man, a prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, who never flattered or coaxed or patronized, who never made arts jokes about them, never treated them as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them who rebuked without quarrelousness and praised without condescension, who took their questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There is no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words of Jesus that there was anything funny about woman's nature. But we might easily deduce it from his contemporaries and from his prophets before him and from his church to this day. Strange how we should look at it on Father's Day, I guess. What can we do to be a great father? I, I forget where the quote comes from. If you know, then... Tell me, the greatest thing you can do for your children is to love their mother. And I understand that on Father's Day there are all kinds of broken relationships and for some of us it, it causes us great pain. 
but it is a truth that holds one of the greatest things that we can do for our children is to love their mother. And I don't know, maybe there are some dads here today. And I can say to you as I say to myself, how, how much do your kids know? How much do they know that you love their mother? How much? How much? So, Jesus, defender of woman. What about you as a man? What do you think about that? What does it say about some of the things that maybe went through your head when I asked the question 20 minutes ago? Are you perpetuating the prejudice? Or are you living in the light of something new that Jesus modeled, who came to break the curse and its destructive forces in our lives and in our world? And what about you as a woman? Do you live under the shadow of all the prejudice that you face, that you are facing? Or are you breaking free to live in the light of God's truth? You see, I sense that if we scratch just below the surface of men, there's a lot of prejudice. If you scratch below the surface of women, there's a lot of hurt. And Jesus said, I've come to do something new and different here. To build a new community where there's no Jew or Greek and no male or female. Something new. Something that this world has not grasped or captured. Whatever culture has evolved. Something new. Something different. Will you be part of that new thing? that God wants to bring. And then quickly, your attitude to children. What is your attitude to children? No, really. What do you really think about children? Jesus exhibited a special place in his heart for children. You might have grown up in an era where children were to be seen, but not heard. But not heard. In first century Judaism, it would have been worse than that. You see, if women were the property of the household, the children were almost the property of the women who were the property of the household. And again, into that context, Jesus lifts the the dignity, the worth, the value of a child right up to be equal with everybody else. Turn with me, page 1014, Mark chapter 10. Page 1014, Mark chapter 10. People were bringing little children to Jesus and had to have him touch them, but the disciples rebuked them. Now, don't be too hard on the disciples, that's just what happened in that culture. The children just got out of the way. They had no uh, place, no right, certainly in a public setting as we Uh, might imagine it to be here. These were men. They'd uh, been working hard all day. It was probably time to move on to the next village. What the disciples did was normal for that culture. They're just little children. Let's send them away. We've got no uh, time for them. And it's easy to be harsh with them, but I don't think that's fair. We've all done exactly that. We've all shooed children away, dismissed them because we felt something more important, something adult was happening. We've all done that. Jesus was indignant, though, when he saw the disciples do it. He was cross. There's even a, a sense in the, in the word of, of, of both anguish, sorrow, and anger. 
A huge contrast is being set up between the disciples who were behaving as everyone would expect and Jesus who was behaving for that culture completely out of character. And then comes the mega statement. Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them. Why? For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Wow. The kingdom of God. The most precious, the most important thing in the whole of the world. The kingdom of God. The one single thing that Jesus came to bring. The one thing that he taught about on every page of the Gospels. The rule, the reign, the blessing, the presence, the place of God. That a woman, that culture said, couldn't even read about because it was too important and too precious. And now here Jesus is saying, not only does a woman have every right to access that kingdom of God, but he's now saying a child has as much right to the kingdom of God, as a woman or to a man. A complete subversion of the hierarchical, patriarchal society in which he was living. And then Jesus, never knowingly missing a teaching opportunity, he says, you know, you can learn something from these children. Look at their attitude. Look at the way they come, open and receptive to receive the kingdom. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. And then brilliantly, marvelously, verse 16, and he took the children in his arms, put his hands on them, and blessed them. I don't know what you imagine. I expect you imagine what all the pictures present for us. Jesus scooping down, gathering several children in his arms. Hello? That resonate with you? I don't know, but it's wrong. It resonated with me, but it was wrong. See, Mark uses some very careful Greek here. And that picture of Jesus kind of just gathering the kids in his arms together is wrong. The Greek makes it clear that he took each child one by one. Deliberately, slowly, no rush, no dealing with them all as a group, but personally, individually to each child. It would take as long as it would take. Imagine the disciples, they were restless anyway, wanting to go, their stomachs are grumbling, they can smell the chips frying in the next street, and Jesus is just taking them, one by one, I go, Jesus, come on! No, no rush, no hurry, one by one. Individuals, precious, each a child to which the kingdom of God belongs, each a child for whom soon he would die. And it's a challenge, isn't it? You see, my observation is that not many people do that. Treat children as individuals, that is. Get down to their level, get into their world. See, lots of people come to our house. And if you've never come to our house, you're very welcome to come to our house. But what I've noticed, that whilst the arrival of someone at the door gets everyone to leave what they're doing and coming and have a look who it is, I've also noticed that depending on who's at the door, not everybody stays around for very long. Because actually, kids have this kind of intuition as to whether this grown-up is going to respond to them in a way that is personal and individual or not. They soon learn whether a person has that kind of regard, this is just a child and therefore more likely, that they perceive therefore more likely to be ignored or patronized or dismissed or talked over in some way, or whether the person is actually someone who, who has begun to get to know them and begun to be known by them, to have got down on their level and entered their world. Now, I'm not suggesting in any way that people that come to our house are rude to our children, but I think it is a fact that adults respond to, different, to children on, on a whole spectrum. 
some right down into their world, engaging with them as individuals, getting onto their level, into their world. And we're so grateful for the adults in our family life who, who, who get down into our children's world. Because that adult is placing great value on them. That adult is saying, you may be a child, but more, you are one in whom God's image is placed. You are one for whom the kingdom of God belongs. You are someone to know and to be known by. And I think that captures something of what Jesus is all about here. He's into their world. He's down on their level. And I have to say on Father's Day, especially as a father, you can be a father without doing much of that, because it's hard. You can be a parent without doing much of that. You can go on great holidays, you can feed them and clothe them, the house can be fab, everything can be hunky-dory, but you can do it all without getting down on their level and into their world. And Jesus lifted them one by one. Let's pray.